Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed. I hope you are. I'm doing okay, but you know, I got to ask you, I've got to give you an opportunity here to, to just come out and tell us if you've searched your closet for classified documents that you've been holding on to. I did, and I'm okay. How about you? I've searched, uh, or actually, no, I'll take that back. I have my lawyer's search. You know, I brought in a special, <laughs> special high dollar team of, of legal counsel to to go through all of my stuff, and they tell me I'm in the clear. So good, um, yeah. Good. And I'm th- I'm thinking we just need to have a general amnesty. You know, like how they talk about these truth and reconciliation committees. Uh, we'll just have an amnesty for everybody who's ever been in office who ever touched a classified document. I think we should, and uh, you know, it starts here now. Uh, if, if, if folks will come forward and admit their transgressions and turn the documents over to the appropriate authority, we will uh, grant them immunity. What do you say? No, I think it's a great idea. We can have them on the show. We can do some type of, you know, general blessing and, and forgiveness as, you know, ceremony. And Well, maybe we can make it a condition that, that they come on the show. Ah, there you go. Now you're thinking. Yeah, no, that's what we need to do. But this story certainly took a, a different twist this week. Uh, first, uh, they found, I guess it's a sixth batch of stuff in the Biden house. Uh, the story now is that the DOJ was prepared to execute a search warrant and didn't uh, because they were allowed into the home, uh, found more documents. And then Pence came, former Vice President Pence came out and said that his lawyer had found something also. So where do you think this story stands now, you know, I'm not sure. From the Biden perspective, you know, he thinks that he and Pence are similar. And Trump is different because he, I think the left, um, the partisan left views the Trump situation as an obstruction of justice, or at least they're transitioning to more of an obstruction of justice <clears throat> focus rather than a possession classified documents outside of an appropriate facility. But I don't think that's it. I I think that I think the public doesn't understand. I'm satisfied they don't understand the rules and the the law with respect to classification. No reason they should. And but I think they think that, well, you know, that's just the way Washington is. But I'm troubled by Biden having documents left over from his time in the Senate, his time as vice president. We don't know about any recent stuff. In multiple locations, um, Hunter was living in his home, was pretty clearly, in my opinion, selling access to the him, Uncle Jim, and Daddy Joe during this time period. You and I talked about the Miranda Devine story in the New York Post on Monday where she lays out in some detail this memorandum that he sent prior to a meeting that he had arranged with some foreign business folks. And by he, you're, you're referring to, to Hunter Biden. Right. Uh, he sent he sent this memo, and it's a very detailed memo. Uh, she talks about the 22 points in it, which read like a briefing document from the government. Uh, about the situation in Ukraine, as well as America's response to certain activities that might take place. What we're, what we're dealing with is more Biden plagiarism. 
well, <laughs> plagiarism of the highest <laughs> order if it were from a classified yeah. document. Uh, the implication Absolutely. being that when you look at and of course, this was found on the laptop he left behind. But the implication also being that if you look at all the other stuff that he produced, he really was of no quality. And this was full of intelligence information. So how did he write this memo unless it was by accessing right. those classified documents? And it's like you said, it's so different from his other writings that it just leaps out as, hey, red flag here. I think that is a pretty big deal um, because, you know, it, it, it is certainly it appears as though there was classified uh, information being sold in this case or otherwise provided to, a, to, to foreign entities who weren't entitled to have such. I think that makes this different. But, you know, we still don't know why. Joe Biden had his lawyers searching for this stuff to begin with. No, nobody in the press that I've seen has even asked the question. Well, the story was that his lawyers were moving his office, which didn't make any sense. Why would you have right. lawyers moving your office? Right. Uh, but then if they came across something like this and they continued searching, even if they had some type of security clearance, that doesn't apply for every classified document at that level. And so they should have known, stop searching, bring in an expert to look. And they didn't do that either. And and then they looked other places. Um, you know, the president this past weekend didn't go to his home. He went to his beach home. Um, and one wonders, was he searching there or were other people searching there? And But the question and I keep coming back to is why? And, and so... I feel like that there's that there's more to this than than just inadvertence. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that the Republican Congress, if no one else, will get to the bottom of this. There's just no there's just no reason for people to remove these classified documents from what they, they call the, you know, the secure compartmented. Um, what is it? With a skill. Information uh, yeah, information facility is what it is. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the distinguishing factor to me at this point is the revelation of these documents from his time in the Senate. Because, you know, Trump made the argument he's president, he can declassify anything. That's absolutely true. Um, Pence, you know, you go, well, the president, the vice president, they're dealing with this material all of the time within the Oval Office complex and and maybe it gets swept up in some boxes. From from everyone who has spoken, though, it's a totally different story on Capitol Hill. That's right. Uh, right. Which is that they go to the basement, they go to the skiff, they read the documents, they leave the documents, they leave the skiff. Where does Biden, and this goes back years, obviously, since his time in the Senate, but where does he get off ever removing those documents from the skiff in the first place? And how did he do it? Did he pull a Sandy Burger and put it in his underwear? Good questions. I guess my concern is is that I don't think any one of the three of them need to be just given a wink, wink, nod, nod and say, boys will be boys. I mean, we need to get to the bottom of this and let the chips fall where they may. You know, the fact that we're left with, for the first time, a, a president subject of a special counsel and a presidential excuse me, a presidential sibling or not sibling, but child subject to a special counsel um, and potentially a presidential sibling 
subject to a special counsel all at the same time. And it doesn't seem, I'm not sure that it's, it's yet reached the point that I would have hoped at this, at this stage in terms of it. You missed the fact that a former president and current presidential candidate also being subject to a special counsel. Oh, that's true. Uh, You're right. Basically just special counsels everywhere looking at all this behavior. Now, I think that I think that all of this, as I said before, I think it makes it very difficult for the Justice Department to prosecute Trump, which is what they wanted to do in the first place. And yet at the same time, it just it's this whole unseemly behavior with all the documents. I think that Pence went and looked for these documents because he didn't want it to come out during his presidential campaign, which he's going to start. So I think that's why his came out. You have an interesting theory which you explained to me yesterday. And it, I think it touches on this, but it also gets into the uh, resignation of the president or White House chief of staff. And it has to do with the current state of the Democrat Party and, and perhaps the wishes of its, uh, I guess, senior leadership, specifically Obama, Obama and the Obama mafia. T- t- tell the listeners what your theory is, because, you know, I love a good conspiracy theory and this is right up my alley. Yeah, this could be our conspiracy theory of the week. But, the, you know, there, there are people talking about the fact that all of these all of this coming out with Biden at this point probably hurts Biden. But it also helps others within the Democrat Party who see Biden as past his time and they're ready to move on to someone else. Now, at the same time, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, announced that he's leaving the White House. And yeah, people come, people go in the White House. But it seems suspicious timing. But the other interesting aspect of that is the new chief of staff designee, who was a, a director of their COVID response. But also, apparently, all of his ties aren't with Joe Biden. They're with the Obama wing of the Democrat Party. And so you have to question whether he's going to have any loyalty to Biden once he's chief of staff or if he's going to be there help paving the way for the next uh, the next person. I started to say man, but it could be a woman in this case. That's interesting. It, it sure. It sure fits in, in a lot of places if that's the in fact, the plan. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you have to note is that. Uh, you know, people have said this since the beginning is uh, when the question comes up about who's running the White House, because Biden doesn't have this history of being uh, so far to the left on so many issues. A lot of people have said it's Ron Klain that's pushing this progressive agenda from the White House. Uh, but at least he has some loyalty to Biden. That's going to change. And that's changing quickly. At a time when Biden is at his weakest, probably. And and there's some new book out about the the, I guess, the first year and a half or so of the Biden administration written by a, a, a writer who is not uh, unsympathetic to, to the Democrat party and, and, and president Biden that at least from the reviews that I've seen portrays the white house um, and the Biden administration as being in utter chaos where nobody really knows what's going on. There doesn't seem really to be anyone in charge and there's a lot of backbiting and internal squabbling and feuding among all the various players sort of underneath the uh, 
president and perhaps the chief of staff level. To which our response is, really? That's a surprise? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't think so. Um, now, you know, d- turning today to today, there was an announcement just a, a few hours ago, which I think is pretty significant. This is part of what Biden said from the White House today. And today, today I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. We are, there is no offensive threat to Russia. Okay, Lee, so now we, uh, we're sending the big tanks to Ukraine also. What do you think about that? I think that's, I think that's highly problematic because, you know, you you, you can't let Putin, uh, you can't let him dictate like he wants to. But by the same token, he sits on enough nuclear weaponry to destroy the world by himself, and he's shown us that he's less than rational. And frankly, I don't think Ukraine is as we've talked before, is a a sufficient reason for World War III um, or even a major European war. And, and, you know, Putin made a comment several days ago when the Germans were considering either sending their leopard tanks or allowing other countries to whom they had sold the leopard tanks to send some to the Ukrainians that if that should happen, he was going to retaliate against Berlin. And so I view this as a serious, serious uh, increase in tension uh, and, and concern. The International Association of, what is it, atomic scientists that have the doomsday clock. How many minutes to midnight? Yeah, they unveiled a new, um, a new clock um, late last week. Um, that shows 90 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been. And they said they did that in, at least in part based upon the situation in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, there was a, some video that made all the news channels uh, yesterday um, of the German foreign minister in English talking I'm not sure if she was testifying to the Bundestag or what, but she's talking uh, in a situation that looks perhaps like a a legislative environment would look. And she's speaking in English and she talks about how we're at war with Russia. We're at war with Russia, which of course is not the case. The Germans have been waffling back and forth and, and trying to have their cake and eat it too. And, not alienate the Russians, if, if, in, if only in part to try to keep their folks warm this winter. And yet she would make the statement, and she's not some low-level clerk. You know, she's the foreign minister that, quote, we're at war with Russia. Uh, I think is troubling in the extreme. A few days ago, um, there was a delegation of senators that went over to Ukraine, and then they spoke. Um, Blumenthal was one, but the one who you know, jumped out at me was Lindsey Graham. Uh, and he came out of the press conference in support of sending tanks. And I, almost his exact quote is, 
If they get tanks, they'll win. If they don't get these tanks, we don't know what's going to happen. That may or may not be true. You know, but, but my point isn't as much that as it probably was only a few weeks ago before someone similar, if not him, was saying if they get the Patriot missile defense, they'll win. If they don't, something else could happen. And before that, it was they need these howitzers to win. And before that, it was small arms ammo. Before that, it was, you know, whatever it was. And it has just continued on this path for the last year with one expert or another, one politician or another saying they have to have this weapon system or this platform in order to win the war. And we're just moving further and further to where we were supplying Ukraine and then we're in a proxy war with Russia. And at what point are we actually at war with Russia? So it's just it's just a continued movement in that direction with no real question about whether this is in America's best interest. It's Vietnam all over again. Then, you know, that's a good analogy. And the fact that Danang Dick um, was the one having a lot to say after the trip to Ukraine, I think is appropriate. Yeah. The other, the other thing about these, these Abrams tanks is that these are beast. Uh, uh, they don't come cheap. They don't come easy. It's going to require training of soldiers, a pretty heavy supply chain, uh, to maintain the fuel that's required for these things. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty big commitment, another big commitment, another larger commitment. It's like nine gallons to the mile or something that they that they use fuel, right? Yeah, something like that. I was doing some research on this earlier because uh, I've, I've heard different things about how much they burned, and I saw different burn rates. But also, they don't – apparently, the M1s originally used diesel. They were designed for some options, but – Apparently, the ones we're sending require jet fuel at a high right. burn rate. So you have to supply those tanks to keep them, you know, active. And, of course, part of that uh, clip we just played from Biden is that these are not offensive weapons. Uh, you know, his, his the reason he says they're not offensive weapons is because he sees them being used in the defense of Ukraine. However, calling a tank a defensive weapon versus an offensive weapon is just kind of a play on words from a logistical practical standpoint how do you how do you get 31 behemoths into ukraine in the midst of a war well i have to assume it's by rail there's still rail running in and out of the western part of ukraine into Um, poland yeah yeah um and and at what point does russia you know we talked about this back in the fall at what point does russia say those are legitimate targets, even though they may be in Poland. And then where are we? Well, if they strike those targets when they're in a NATO country, that is that is quite problematic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it. <clears throat> excuse me, it seems to me that there are two issues there. One is, what does Putin say do? And then what does Ivan at the various levels beneath Putin all the way down to the 19-year-old trigger puller. What does 19-year-old Ivan do when he sees what he believes and knows to be a legitimate target, but they're not quite across the Polish border? Well, you probably don't have Ivans that close to the the Polish border because most of the Soviet, most of the Russian forces are, I guess, you know, further in the eastern part of the country. Um, So, how how would Putin actually reach out and touch these things in Poland and ballistic missiles? You know, uh, 
Palmers. Yeah, that's what. And and he has he has. Um, I think he even has artillery in Belarus, does he not? He does. And in fact, there's discussion about, you know, perhaps a winter offensive actually coming through Belarus uh, sometime over the next few months. Uh, You may have seen this story, but the uh, director of central intelligence was in Ukraine within the last week to 10 days, apparently providing information that was so sensitive that they didn't want to send it any other way than him actually going over there to discuss it. Uh, some of the rumors are that it has to do with some type of Russian offensive, which would be on you know, more than one front, including Belarus. And and they didn't want to put it in writing. It had to be face-to-face kind of stuff. Right. Which is scary. But if they don't put it in writing, we're pretty confident that it's not going to end up in some politician's garage or closet. That's a very good point. <laughs> Very good point. So, yeah, unless you have another thought on this, I want to turn to this other document that uh, you sent me a couple of weeks ago, this Declaration of North America, or DNA, that came out of the meeting between Canada, Russia, Canada, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Um, Do you want to just kind of summarize what this is, this DNA Well, it it basically, as I understand it, for lack of a better word, a memorandum of agreement or understanding among the three nations as to certain things that each will endeavor to do to, quote, unquote, benefit North America. Um, And is uh, the, the troubling aspects of this have to do with changing the immigration system to more almost an open border situation, which, of course, would contravene the laws as as passed by our Congress and uh, signed in the law by our president um, or presidents, different presidents at different times. Uh, With the stroke of a pen by Joe Biden and uh, uh, Fidel Jr. and the Mexican president. And, of course, that's constitutionally troubling. Um, but it is also uh, politically troubling, or would be if the public knew, and it's practically troubling in that, you know, the, 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 the numbers of folks coming across the border has just exploded, as we've talked about in the past, and it's continuing to increase. Uh, so, so that's one aspect to that. And then the other is, it seems to be a return to NAFTA where we're going to be sending all of our jobs from a manufacturing uh, perspective uh, overseas, not overseas, but to Canada and or Mexico. And basically it means Mexico, I think, just because of the socioeconomic differences and they can, you know, pay people less to get the same work in Mexico than you could in the United States or Canada, which is just, part and parcel of this globalist agenda that we've been dealing with for however many decades now. And, and it's, it's right back to everything we need as a nation. We're importing the middle class is withering on the vine. And we have all kinds of people just walking across our border. And now we got to pay for all of them. Um, And, and it's, it's, it's really troubling. And I, I know that, this uh, this week, there was a story that Yuma, Arizona, 
has basically thrown in the towel and cried uncle and said, we, we don't know, we can't deal with this anymore. There's just too many folks here uh, from outside the country who come across the Mexican border. And, and now we have to uh, you know, support them and provide services and so forth. And, and we don't have the money to do it. Yeah. And that, you know, that's just that's an ongoing issue with the, the Biden border crisis, which we've been talking about. Um, you know, and I actually have this DNA document right in front of me. And, you know, just to, just to give the listener a sense of this, because, frankly, when when I heard about this and you see some tweets or whatever, people were talking about it. I thought, eh, this really can't be real. It's kind of being blown out of proportion or something. Well, this is this is printed off from WhiteHouse.gov. This is what they're putting out. Um, the second paragraph says, we are not just neighbors and partners. We being Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. We are not just neighbors and partners. Our people share bonds of family and friendship and value above all else, freedom, justice, human rights, equality, and democracy. This is the North American DNA. It then goes through six pillars. Well, what's the number one pillar in this? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion is foundational to the strength, vibrancy, and resilience of our countries. Um, well, you could, you could debate about that, but you'd probably certainly not debate the fact that the U.S. is the most diverse of all these countries. You don't talk about diversity in Mexico yeah. and not that much in Canada. Uh, but then it goes on to the other, the other pillars being climate change and the environment, competitiveness, migration and development, health and regional security. Under the migration and development pillar that you mentioned, there's basically no indication that the U.S. wants to control migration and development. And instead, it says, in part, since June, Mexico, the United States, and Canada have collectively welcomed record numbers of migrants and refugees from the Western Hemisphere under new and expanded labor and humanitarian programs. Today, we affirm our joint commitment to safe, orderly, and humane migration. You know, I won't read the rest, but, you know, we've welcomed record numbers. No, we've been invaded by record numbers of people from all over the world coming across the Mexican border. That's right. You know, the one thing that jumped out at me, Lee, about this is when you wonder what Trump meant when he talked about an America first agenda, kind of hard to quantify sometimes. But this is clearly the opposite. This is clearly America last. It doesn't say anything in here about jobs for America, about American border security, uh, about making America great again, certainly. Absolutely. That's a that's a really good way to summarize it. So, you know, does this get translated into legislation? No, but it tells you what the Biden administration's thinking. Um, So that's what we got out of that meeting in Mexico. Uh, Biden went to El Paso after they'd cleaned the streets up, and then he went and signed off on something like this. Well, what's on your radar for the next week, Lee? I mean, I think the top two things continue to be Ukraine and the the situation with the uh, classification of documents and and uh, and the hunter and the, the the interplay there or the overlap with between those and the Hunter Biden investigation. And, you know, I, I noticed sort of a sea change or what I think is the beginning of a sea change with respect to the news media and some rather prominent Democrats and their responses to now six batches, as you mentioned, of 
classified documents in in the Biden in the, in the possession of, of the president. Yeah, those daily briefings at the White House have sounded a little bit differently than before this. Yeah, and 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 as that as that continues, and and of course, there's no um, th- th- there's no guarantee, I guess, that that there won't be more. And of course, they covered it up for months, so you wonder what else has been covered up. And and I, I just wonder if. And that gets back to your theory. Um, you know, at some point the rats start leaving the ship and Barry Goldwater and, and um, the Senate leadership gets in a limousine and they go to the White House and they tell the man to quit. You know, or, and, and it's not a stretch to think we could be looking at that in a matter of weeks to months. Well, and, you know, if that's going to happen, they would certainly want to do it. Probably I would think certainly want to do it before he announces a reelection bid. He very much wanted to do that. Um, and, I, and this has certainly thrown a curve in those plans. And and you wonder if, if you know, I just your theory is fascinating to me. You know, who is the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain that's pulling these strings to to uh, cause this to happen and, and to get it publicized? I mean, clearly it's not Merrick Garland. He helped cover it up for, for several months. And I think that... <clears throat> Biden or Garland screwed up by appointing, in hindsight, by appointing a special counsel for for the Trump situation because now he's got to be seen as as doing the same thing for Trump. I mean, for Biden that he did for Trump, and yet it was a political win for Biden, and now he's painted with the same brush. Um, and it's a mess, and I don't know that you can fix it. Yeah, Garland was stuck. He was locked in. He didn't have any choice but to do it at that point. Now, do they reach the same conclusion because they want to argue it's different, perhaps? But the appointment of the special prosecutor itself, really no way around that for Garland, I don't think, once this came out. That's right. Absolutely. He, he was His hands were tied. And then, so you've got you've got the special prosecutor situation. You've got the special prosecutor for Hunter. And you got the Republican Congress looking into both of those issues. You've got the special counsel for uh, for Trump, and then I don't, you know, like we said, I'm not sure what happens with Pence, and it it just starts to fester, and you wonder if if the Biden White House um, is going to die a death of a thousand cuts, not unlike the Nixon White House. Yeah. So what's on your radar? You know, a couple of things. One is that I had predicted that. The, um, you know, the Senate going along with the House plan for this omnibus bill to fund the government the rest of the year would deplete the leverage which the incoming Republican majority had. But now Secretary of Treasury Yellen says that the government's out of money and she's resorting to extraordinary measures to fund the government. So, you know, I think there may be some leverage now that McCarthy has back. Uh, to force some spending restraints, perhaps, in exchange for an increase in the debt seal. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few months. The other thing, the other matter related to to Ukraine is, I have this statistic here, I've had it for a little while, and honestly, I can't recall the source. I think it was CSIS, but I'm not sure. But it says 
the United States has provided 8,500 javelins to Ukraine. At the recent production rate of 1,000 a year, it'll take 12 and a half years to rebuild the American inventory of javelin missiles to where it was before the Ukraine conflict started. And that was just one of a bunch of statistics of how long it's going to take to replenish military stockpiles, which is where a lot of this equipment has come from. And so it'll be interesting to see if anyone has any um, any umption in Congress to start rebuilding the American military. Yeah, which is it's critically necessary. And, you know, if for no other reason, then you don't want the Chinese to get froggy. People like that, sent, bad guys sense weakness. Very good point about the Chinese and, and what they might do to complete their desires to take over uh, Taiwan. You got anything else? No, I guess I, I would like to end with a question. Do we feel sorry for Corrine Jean-Pierre having to face the music on, on the classified document slow leaks, or do we say that's what you get? I say that's what you get. Um, you know, some of it is because of the arrogance that's come from the White House uh, podium. Uh, you know, her very first uh, her very first statement was how she was representational for various minority groups, and that's why she had the job. So some of it's for that arrogance, but also it's because, you know, the White House press secretary also has some obligation to go back to her boss and say, you're not going to leave me hanging out there. And she hasn't had the, the courage, apparently, to do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's on her. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, every time I start to think, well, you know, I feel sorry for her. I, I keep coming back. She has an obligation, I think, to the American people to um, at least get permission to say what she needs to say and not prevaricate or obfuscate or some of those things, at least beyond what we would consider to be a normal amount and a reasonable amount, whatever that may be. Well, here's the simple answer. You know, she keeps saying something to the effect of, I'm going to have to refer you to the White House counsel on that or DOJ or whatever. But let's just go with the White House counsel example. Well, guess where the White House counsel works? In the White House. They could come to the briefing room. Um, and, and their answer might not be any different. But at the same time, you can't refer them to another government resource and not make that person or that office available. That's right. And refresh my memory. I, I had this thought earlier. The White House counsel represents the office of the president, not the president himself, correct? That is the position that was taken during the Trump administration, as I recall. Uh, I, I'm not certain there's a clear answer to that, Lee. I do recall that this came up in the past uh, in litigation and that they may that different counsel's offices might have taken different views on that. Okay. I mean, the AG represents the government. And the president, at least in the Trump years, had his own counsel for him as an individual. And the office of counsel looked after the White House proper. Um, and I think that's kind of the result of the thinking after Watergate. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that, that the Biden folks draw those lines the same way that I would want them drawn. 
I'm going to I'm going to task you with providing a special report next week on on just that point. That should be interesting. That means I'm going to task you with reminding me to do that. And put that on the calendar for Tuesday. Okay. All right. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can email us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this show, please click subscribe with your podcast provider. Leave us a review and tell your friends. Mm-hmm.